You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 58. We all have a bunch of things in our lives that we should simply stop doing. Whether it's at home, at work, or in our own business, most of us are spending our valuable time doing things that add little value and take our attention away from the things that really matter. Whether it's at home or at work or in our own business, most of us are spending some of our time doing things that add little value and take attention away from the things that really matter. My guest in this episode is here to help. Matt Maloof is, among other things, a hugely popular personal coach. And of all the things he spends time helping his clients with, deciding on the things they should stop doing is top of the list. So much so that he wrote a book about it. The Stop Doing List. More time, more profit, more freedom. In the conversation you're about to hear, Matt talks us through a simple process for identifying the tasks in our lives that we should ditch, and he helps us make a plan for taking action. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt Maloof. Matt Maloof, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, mate. How are you going tonight? Oh, very well. Thanks, mate. And and thank you for sticking around. I know I put this meeting off another 15 minutes, so it's it's almost bedtime here on the East Coast of Australia. So my apologies for that, mate. But look, I've been looking forward to this chat for a couple of weeks now. When your book landed on my doorstep, I was so excited to read it. The Stop Doing List, it's an alluring title and even more so as a topic. Yeah, mate. You know, it's, it's really interesting. It- when I had the opportunity to pitch the book, it was actually the stop doing this was actually the working title. I thought I was going to come up with a title and uh, everyone, everyone I spoke to about it just loved it. And uh, it's a bit of counterintuitive thinking, but geez, it makes a big difference into people's lives. It sure does. It's a, the reason that it works as a title is because you know straight away what the book's going to be about and you want to learn what the book's about. You spend a little bit of time convincing your reader of the wisdom of working out the things in their life that they should stop doing, and then you map out for them a system to help them understand or pinpoint exactly what those things are and how they should go about eliminating them from their life. Absolutely. When I set the intention of writing the book, the first thing I made very clear to myself was I didn't want to just create a new theory book. Mm. Um, I think there's you need to learn theory and skills and the like, but I wanted to create a workbook and a system that people could implement and literally step through so that by the end of the book, everything is up and and ready to go. And and you've actually, you're very clear on what you want to stop doing, but you also have a how-to on how to stop doing it. Yeah, you you certainly do that. Now, Now, I noticed that you pitched the book squarely at entrepreneurs and business owners. And indeed, harking back to one of my earlier podcasts, 
the work that you do could indeed be the the difference taking someone you know the giving them the leap from being a business owner to being an entrepreneur but that's by the by I suppose but when I read it about entrepreneurs and and small business people I think it could so easily be applied to all of us in our private life and for leaders and managers in in any sized organization absolutely it's interesting you say that I I actually have a stop doing list for things around home and mm. personal life and the like as well. And um, there, there will be iterations of the book coming out. Look, it was pitched initially at small business owners and entrepreneurs primarily because that's who I work a lot with. Mm. However, one of the teachings that I take people through is as an owner, manager or leader in an organization gets clear on what they need to stop doing, Part of what they then need to do is help everybody else in the organization get clear on what they need to stop doing also. Otherwise, the top of the business gets some freedom, but that just gets pushed down through the organization. So you can have this massive efficiency happening right through your whole organization. And uh, we've actually worked with organizations with up to 100, 150 or, or more employees where they all adopt the system and the um, the happiness that it brings and engagement within an organization is phenomenal. Because it's that really simple concept. If, if you stop doing the right things and focus on the things that you're good at, the things that you're talented at, you have a natural strength, therefore enjoy doing, of course, that, that work satisfaction just goes through the roof, doesn't it? So absolute no-brainer. Love the concept. And we're obviously going to get to the heart of of how we do this as small business owners and entrepreneurs and leaders and organizations. But let's start by talking about this concept around the house, because it's probably the easiest to understand. You know, Matt, I love it because, and, and it comes in a timely, it's timely for me. My wife and I, over the last six or, or nine months, have just started to get really good at this at home. For a long time, we kind of resisted it. I don't know why. Maybe it's a generational thing. We're we're both in our early 40s. We didn't see our parents offloading work at home. So it took us ages to get into it. We've got two young kids now. So it sort of came to the crunch where we had to start offloading some of those low-level jobs or we just weren't going to get to spend time with our kids. So it started off with the cleaning around the house. We got rid of that and we, as soon as we did that, we just said, oh my goodness, why didn't we do this years ago? <laughs> and then it, it spread to other jobs around the yard, you know, spreading bark through the garden. So these days now we have a pool guy, we have a lawn guy, we have a cleaner. And if we do any sort of manual tasks around the yard, we just outsource that through Airtasker as well. It's life-changing. Oh, I couldn't say it, but I, I, absolutely life-changing. And the other thing is, I think you know, I talk about it in the in the first part of the book around uh, mindset, you know, and, and the four negative mindsets, things like they can't do it as well as I can, mm, or yeah. I don't want to keep up control of that, or I can't afford it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, one of the, I just helped one of my clients. She was, I'm like, tell me some of the tasks you do around the house. Tells me about the ironing. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God, I hate ironing. She goes, I hate ironing too. <laughs> we found someone, how's this? For $35, we'll come to her house, collect a basket of ironing with as many things as she can fit into the basket, take it away, and within 24 hours, drop it back to her door, all ironed, all done, $35. 
it is unbelievable, isn't it? You've and one of the, yeah. one of the keys to it, as you point out in your book, and and we all know this, but we just we're reluctant to do it, is putting a value on your time. You know, her Correct. time is worth more than thirty five dollars to to do that basket of washing. And as you say in your book, giving it to someone for whom it's their expertise, they're going to do it faster and better than she is anyway. You touched on it there. You start in the book by talking about the four negative mindsets that stop us from doing it. We tell ourselves, number one, no one can do it as well as I can. Number two, we don't want to give up control. Number three, I can't afford it. And that's where we just talked about putting a a value on your own time. And number Mm. four, (laughs) this is a crazy one, mate, but I know it's true. Number four is I don't have time to delegate it. That's pretty funny. Ah. And, you know, and they literally came from working with thousands of people and hearing the same messages over and over again. Yeah. And look, you know, I've fallen victim to to that self-talk as well in the past. Yeah. And I think what you were talking about earlier with regards to generational upbringing, I think that's so, so true Mm. because so often it was like, I'll just do it myself or we can't afford that. And, you know, for many uh, households, that maybe they couldn't afford it. Mm. But one of the things, the beautiful things about goal setting is actually setting the target to actually have that those quote-unquote luxuries. Well, I actually think they're necessities in life because these days um, life's too short and you know, no one wants to do things that they don't enjoy. So there's so many opportunities to get rid of it. But time to implement a really interesting one because you really you can't afford not to make the time. Otherwise, 10 years will pass you by and you're still doing the the same crappy tasks that you you really wanted to be get rid of many years ago. That's exactly right. And it, and it is all a habit. And that's where the value of this conversation and your book comes in because for a number of people listening and for a number of people who read your book, it will just convince them what they already know subconsciously and it will in, encourage them to break the habit. Just, you reminded me of a few things. Actually, the shirt outsourcing, I didn't realize until you said that, of the things that we were reluctant to do, the shirts are something that we did outsource years ago. We unloaded those years ago, and that was smart, have never looked back. But, you know, in terms of not wanting to give stuff up, it's funny, of all the tasks that I have given up, the one that I kind of still wish I sort of sort of wish I did was the mowing. I do get some enjoyment out of looking over my lawn and seeing the lovely stripes up and down, and, and mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of satis- satisfying to me. If I'm going to mow, it takes me about an hour and a half to mow and whippersnip my yard. That's an hour and a half I'm not spending with my boys on the weekend, or it's an hour and a half I'm not watching a game of footy, which is relevant as well because that brings value to my life. But in in saying that, if mowing the lawn brings value to your life as well because of the enjoyment Mm. or or whatever it might be, then I think you should do it. And it's funny you bring that up because I've got a uh, a 10-year-old boy. And so recently, like one of the things I always – you know, you always want your kids to grow up with good values. And mm. I think a bit of teaching kids a bit of hard labor is good in these days. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, again, we've got a guy that comes in like you, does the lawn, does the gardening. I just put him on hold for three months. He, he, was, he was mortified. He thought he'd done something wrong. Yeah. But I just wanted to get out in the yard with my boy and teach him. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, like it was good bonding time for us. Now, could we have gone for a bike ride? Yeah. Could we have watched a game of footy? Yeah. But I, it was teaching him a life lesson as well. So sometimes there's value in doing those things. And, you know, I always say you've got to, and that's the whole concept of the genius. You've got to do things you love. If you absolutely love doing your lawn mm. and it's not at the detriment of other things in your life, then you should do it. Yeah. 
I wouldn't say I absolutely love it. It's just not something I had. I've got to say, I, I kind of enjoy watching Richard getting out there and mowing. Thanks, Richard, if you're listening. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's funny you say about the kids. So my oldest boy is nearly four. And we've, as I say, we've gone through this glut of outsourcing at home lately. And yeah. so he's really conscious of it. And we were walking yeah. through the garage the other day and there was this pile of dirt. <laughs> I'm really ashamed about this. There was a pile of dirt. And he said, oh, look at that dirt there, Dad. We better get someone in to sweep that up. <laughs> so I, I, I made a point of going to get a broom and showing them that I could indeed sweep up some dirt. So, mate, that's all good. And actually, before we move off that, I, I want to go back to that generational thing. It, it is an important thing because I think for people like me, I'm, a, I'm right in the middle of Gen X. You know, my parents are older boomers. They probably had more time on their hands than money when I was growing up. And it's very much the reverse for a lot of people these days. Not to say we've got lots of money, but we certainly have less time perhaps than our parents did. So it is for us breaking the habit, you know, breaking that, that habit that we've seen growing up. In my parents' eyes, I'm sure a gardener, someone to do the cleaning, someone to do the ironing was what rich people had. Yes, 100%. My parents were exactly the same and we were a very similar generation. Mm. And, you know, I think, like you said, uh, is there more money? Maybe. But I think also, too, there's a lot more people doing these part-time jobs to make more money. And so it's more affordable to have have these, quote-unquote, luxuries or things that were seen as rich people only opportunities when we were growing up. Yeah, that, of, so, of course, that's a whole element to this, isn't it? Is the way that the economy has changed so that you and I can communicate directly with our guy who mows the lawn or does the cleaning or whatever it is. And there isn't this non-value adding middleman like a taxi company or like Jim's Gardening that adds cost to it, but not value just simply by connecting the consumer and the service provider, we can go directly now, like, you know, in the same way as we can with Uber and Airbnb, and that makes it more affordable for everyone. So that's a, that's a really important element to this conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other thing too is people should understand, because I think uh, people are very reticent because they feel like, you know, they're not paying people enough for these mm. jobs and the like. But in actual fact, you know, something like Airtasker, they're setting the, the rate. You get to choose the rate based on people that bid for your uh, for your job. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you know, in my opinion, a lot of it comes back to valuing yourself. And you talked about, you know, one of the exercises I take people through in the book is actually calculating your hourly rate. Mm. If you don't put a value on your own time, then there is no way you can actually assess against anything. Hence, it will seem expensive. But if you value, you know, value time with, with your kids or yourself or et cetera, et cetera. I think that um, a lot of these tasks that you and I are talking about now are a no-brainer. Yeah, they are, they are a no-brainer. And then, of course, there's that whole concept that parenting has changed as well over those years. So we could go on about all the layers on top of it. But yeah. I guess what it adds up to is we're, we're living a very different family life today, you and I, than the one that we grew up in. Hey, speaking of growing up, mate, are you related to David Maloof, the author? No, I'm not. You're not? Does everybody ask you that? And I do. I get that or uh, the real estate agents, which I'm not related to either. <laughs> All right, we'll go by that. Hey, now, one more question before we get onto the, the nub of this when we talk about doing it at work in our own business or, or as leaders, how did you settle on this as a topic? This is your first book, if I'm not mistaken. Of all the things you discuss with your clients, why this? Yeah, it's a good question. The reason for the 
this topic was with almost every engagement that I start with a client, we were going through this process. Mm, right. And the reason for that was a lot of business owners look, that are looking to grow their business are looking for new things, new things, new things. And um, that is required to grow a company. But what was happening was we were teaching new things and people weren't having the time to execute or implement the new strategies. And so until we created some space and got them out of chaos, they couldn't focus in on the important and non-urgent tasks that were required to take their companies to the next level. Why is it that business owners, leaders in organizations, professionals in any setting or any type of worker, why is it that we tend towards these low-value, repetitive tasks that we feel very safe doing? It's two things. Number one, they're in our comfort zone. Yeah. So they're easy to do. And the second thing is I think we've fallen into the busyness trap. I watched a lot of people through uh, the GFC not leave their desks. I was uh, I owned a gym at the time in the in the Sydney CBD. We used to train a lot of lawyers, accountants, and the like. They were scared to leave their desks out of fear of, of losing their job. Yeah. And so I think culturally within organisations and corporates, being busy is being attached to perform like good performance, where rather than being effective or being you know profitable in what they do. So how do we go about identifying the things in our life, in our job, in our business that we should let go of? Are they normally, when you scratch the surface with your clients and have these type of conversations, are they normally fairly obvious? Does the client already know them, whether it's conscious or not? Or is there a real value in going through a a bit of a process? Look, I think there's, you know, for most people, they could probably put 10 or 12 things onto a list of what they should stop doing. Yeah. But there is a lot of wasted time that people are unconscious about. So one of the first exercises we talk about in the book is getting people to do a time log. Mm. You know, actually record. It's like if you go to go to the gym and want to get you know lose some weight, you got to do an exercise program. But most you know good trainers and like get you to keep a food diary. Yeah, this is just keeping a, a log of your time because it's all the little distractions, it's all the little things you do in a day that need to often be eliminated, automated, or delegated. And then going through the, the actual process of calculating your hourly rate and then getting clarity on everything that you do. So a two-week time log will give you um, some data. I recommend doing it for a longer period of time because it's all these little things that over the sort of, say, a quarter of a business that you get pulled into. You know, I've got to you know sort this out, review that. And I'd say two-thirds of it could be done by somebody else. So when we talk about identifying the things in our life or in our work that we should stop doing, you, you say, number one, start by keeping a log. When you get people to do that, I bet there's some groans, oh, I know what I do, but all right, Matt, I'll do it. Are they always surprised when they look back at two weeks where they have actually kept a log? Is there normally a, a couple of aha uh-huh moments when they realize, actually, geez, I do spend a lot of time on that? There definitely is a heart moments. What's more valuable is having an outsider that's not emotionally attached to what you're doing, observe it. Yeah. And what's really interesting is when I get these time logs, the patterns of behavior that you can see through this, like you can tell when someone starts to get low on energy or tired, you can tell with somebody, you know, in their time log having a bad day or, or you just start to see these behavioral patterns happening. And so if you start to coach and create strategies around that, 
it often enhances the performance. So we, we keep a time log. That's the number one step. And the second step you mentioned there was to calculate our hourly rate. Now, this comes yes. back to that really important concept we spoke about earlier of putting a value on our time. And this is not just at work, but this is at home as well. How do we go about calculating our hourly rate if I work for myself, I'm an entrepreneur, I have my own business? Yeah, it's a good question. There's actually a tool that I've built and I'll, uh, I'll give everyone the website later that they can download that on. But it's really three simple numbers. The first is, what's your goal earnings for say the next 12 months? Yeah. And you need to include a wage that you pay for yourself plus the profit that you're going to make from your business. The second number is, how many weeks do you intend working over the year? So think about how many weeks you want to take off on holidays and deduct that from 52. And then the third is, how many hours do you intend working per week? And uh, getting clear on, you know, if you're currently doing 80 hours a week, don't write 10 because it's not realistic <laughs> that you're going to get to that point. But, you know, you, you might intend working 50 hours a week or 40 hours a week or whatever that might be. And you simply take the first number, divide by the second, and then divide that by the third, and you'll come up with an hourly rate. Now, what's really interesting about that exercise is – for some people, they're like, holy crap, that is so low. I need to do something about that. Yeah. The other side of it is, and what happens more often than not, is people are like, wow, that's what my time is worth. I should fire myself from my current role because you know, 85% of what I'm doing could be done for a fraction of my hourly rate. That's a really great process. It forces people into a couple of positions. First of all, they've got to nominate how much they think they want to earn. Now, of course, when you start your, your business, you, you have this vague idea and sometimes you, you might be too shy to tell people what your goals are. But going through that process, you've got to write it down and actually articulate, put it out there, put it on paper, what you want to earn in the next financial year out of the work you're doing. Great step. And the next one is to ask them how many weeks of the year. And I, get, I know, a very basic question, but it's forcing them to admit I need to have a holiday here. I can't work 52 weeks of the year. And same with the hours. You know, it's, we all start a business because we want to have a better lifestyle. No one starts a business so they could get drowned in work. But we all know that a lot of people who start their own business, they end up working 70, 80 hours a week. So your process forces them to put a cap, even if it's just a nominal cap, a, a goal cap on the, the hours that they're doing and see the value in the work that they do and the time they spend doing it. You know, and that was sort of where the, the subtitle for the book, More Time, More Profit, More Freedom came from. Yeah. Because it's exactly what you said. I mean, no one that I know personally got into business to work more hours, have less holidays and feel like they're, uh, they couldn't do anything that they dreamt of in their life. <laughs> you know, everyone talks about freedom, yet majority of business owners that I meet for the first time feel like, if anything, they've, they're shackled to their business. Yeah. The second thing is it's interesting too on that whole uh, weeks you intend working per year because you know, full-time employees get four weeks of paid leave each year and most people will take it, whereas a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs, because they don't leverage, because they do choose to do everything themselves, aren't able to even take a week or two off. It's, um, you know, as you know, as I know, it's a, it's a really difficult mindset when you are working for yourself and you only bring in money when you're billing your time. It's really difficult to force yourself to take a holiday because in your mind, you're adding onto the cost of the flights and the accommodation, you're adding on the lost income. But of course, 
that is a, a short-term thinking. I've got a very good friend who's a dentist, so he owns his own business as a dentist, and he, he knew right from the beginning of his career he was not going to get stuck into that trap of calculating what he wasn't earning while he was on holidays because that is a road to being burnt out early, to getting divorced and not having a life. It's a really difficult mindset, though, for, for business owners. We all get that, but we know, what the, we know what the right answer is. The right answer is we've got to have a holiday. We've got to have some balanced life. We've got to spend time with our family and friends and engaged in our hobbies, but it's so tough for business owners to do that. All right, so there are five of these, by the way. We've done first two. We've kept a log of our time. We've calculated our hourly rate. What comes third? Then it's uh, identifying what I call your genius. And your genius is defined by what you love doing, what you're really, really good at, and what has a positive financial return to you and the business. And, you know, there's, I think, a lot of things that business owners are good at. And I think that there's a lot of things that they like to do. Mm. But what I'm interested in is helping you fill your day with the things you love doing, which are often the things you got the reason you got involved in this business. Now, most people didn't get involved in the business they're in to do more of the job of their business. Otherwise, they'd just stay as an employee. Yeah. So I'm helping people identify what they love doing. And again, doing this through your whole organization. And I've got this genius model. There's sort of four layers to it. We talk about genius, excellence, competence, and incompetence. And we talk around mm. task for that. And the goal is to get... 100% of your time spent in either genius or excellence. Yeah. Now, the only difference between a, an excellence task and a genius task is you don't necessarily love it. You're really good at it, but it's not necessarily something you love to do. Now, you're not doing something you hate doing. I'll give a really simple example. I started my career as an accountant. Numbers are one of those things that just come naturally to me. And so building financial forecasts and models – yeah, I've always just been very good at that, right? But one of the reasons I got out of accounting was because I didn't love doing that every single day. It's not what I wanted to spend my time doing. I, I enjoy you know, speaking. I enjoy coaching. I enjoy the interaction as well. And so in our businesses, I will do the financial forecasting and modeling. I'll often do financial forecasting like for clients, but it, only ta- it doesn't take up any more than 30% of my time. So that's and something so, that you're good at, but it's not something that you love doing. So it's not in your genius zone. It's in your excellent zone. Correct. Right. Correct. And so there's many with the genius zone, we help you limit that to three to five sort of key things, right? Which is when you really think about it, it actually becomes quite challenging. Absolutely. But, but one of the essential mindsets we talked about in the earlier part of the book was the 80-20 principle. Mm. And this is effectively like the 80-20 of the 80-20. You know, it's really breaking down into those few key areas of your business. When you focus in on them, you'd love to fill your day with them. They have a great financial return for you and the company, and you're really good at it. And who wouldn't want to show up to business and work in that environment? (laughs) So, So let me get this right. You're really good at it. It makes the most money. It makes 80% of your money. You really enjoy doing it, yet we've got to remind people that that's where we should be spending their time. It's crazy, isn't it, Matt? But we both know it's the truth. Now, just to recap for our listeners, Matt's talking about four zones of things that we do. 
The first zone is incompetence, stuff that we are just not good at. Then there are stuff that we're competent at, where we can muddle through. Then there's stuff that we're excellent at. Now, this is this, these are things that we're good at doing, but we don't necessarily love. And then, of course, there's the the nirvana, which is the genius zone. They're things that we love doing, we're really good at doing, and they bring in value to our organization. You're saying, Matt, we should be spending 100% of our time in the excellent and the genius zone and 0% of our time where we're incompetent and where we're just muddling through competently. 100%. And what you'll find is a lot of people in business or even in in day-to-day work are muddling through two-thirds of their day. Yeah, because, you know, and we and we all started doing it. When I started doing this podcast, which was part of my business, the Team Guru thing, I started off editing my podcast. I had never done anything with audio. And, and listeners who've been with me from the start will know that my first 10 episodes are pretty ordinary in terms of getting the audio right because I was doing it myself. It was And it was the first time I'd ever touched audio software. So that was clearly something that I needed to outsource pretty quickly. And ever since those early episodes, I've had my man, Jerson, g'day Jerson, who will be listening to this because he's going to edit it on board. And this is what Jerson does all day, every day. He's awesome at it. He does it way better than I do it. And he does it faster than I do it. I mean, it's a no brainer. Yet there's a lot of us doing stuff in our business that is like that. Bookkeeping is one of them, isn't it, Matt? 100%. And it's a really good example you give because, so what was the gentleman that does your uh, your sound editing? Jerson. Jerson. Jerson is playing in his genius when he's editing these audios. Exactly. You're playing in your genius when we're doing what we're doing now. Exactly. And so it's really important because I think often a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, managers, leaders in organizations feel that, well, if I don't want to do it, I shouldn't necessarily give it to somebody else. Find people that love doing the things that you don't love doing and employ those people. And they're out there. I'll I'll give it like whether it's bookkeeping, you know, I've actually got two personal assistants. I've got one locally and one overseas. And they love doing all of the stuff that I don't love. You only have to talk to people for five minutes to realize that we all love doing different things. So you're right. You have this sort of subconscious reflex. Oh, I don't don't like doing it. Why should I make him do it? When in fact, that is what he or she likes doing. That's their their genius. That's their, their wheelhouse. 100%. 100%. That's 100%. great. It's a great concept, mate. And and that was one, you know, even though I've taken a bit of educating along the way here, that was one that I offloaded early. And the reason it worked out is because immediately I saw the dividends. Immediately mm. I saw, you know, it used to take me half a day, seriously, half a day to edit a one-hour podcast to get that half day back and then have the podcast come back better than I could do it anyway from the very first time I sent it to Jerson was a no-brainer. Whereas I guess there are other more complex or more dynamic jobs where there are more moving parts that it takes a little bit more time to get that kind of payback. Yes and no, because I think if you break the process down, often you can probably outsource aspects of a total um, project to experts and have them align and do it together. And you're so, and you're left leading it, which is you know maybe your expertise. Correct. Correct. Awesome. Yeah, I mean. It does take time. The whole stop doing this concept is not about creating this list and then stopping everything tomorrow. It does take time to build the systems and procedures and train people up. It's about the commitment to it, though, and knowing that, you know, every aspect that I can offload to somebody else means I can spend more time doing the, the things that I love 
And inevitably, I'm either going to have more time and or make more money. And often there's both. Yeah. And, you know, do, you know, have more free time as well, which is really important. Now, I, I noticed earlier that I agreed very quickly to this concept of, oh, yes, I'm a genius when it comes to podcasting. But I think that underpinning that is that really difficult thing that we have, as, you know, especially here in Australia, but maybe all cultures, where we do have to get over ourselves and admit there are some things we do better than others. So for you with your clients, I'm imagining getting them to decide what is in their genius area is a bit of a stretch because that forces people to talk about what they're good at what they're talented at, and most of us don't like doing that. Absolutely. And, you know, for the listeners, you can't be great at everything, Mm. even though I think at times we like to think we are. It doesn't mean you can't do that ever again. It's just focusing in on a few things and doing them really well will always pay the dividends. And you're right. It's in that, you know, when asking somebody what they're really good at, in particularly in the Australian culture, a lot of people – don't like telling you what they're really good at, but it's okay to be, you know, it's not an, I don't believe it's arrogance. I believe it's actually very smart to focus on things that you're really good at. You know, and organizations will run uh, profiling and the like to work out what people's strengths are and what Mm. they like. It's just a different way of saying that. Let's just play to your strengths, play to your natural abilities, or again, and couple that with the things that you love doing. Yes. you've, You've chosen a very emotive word, haven't you? Genius. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. All right, but you know, you, you're you're right. We're right. If you're not identifying your strengths, then you're not giving yourself the chance to enjoy your work and produce great results, and you know, do all the things that we want to achieve. So we're going through our list. Number one was to keep a log. Number two was to calculate your hourly rate. Number three was to identify your genius and work in that area, and of course, dump the stuff you're no good at. Number four is to. What we do is we run the tasks that are now you've identified that don't fall into your genius through what we call the focus funnel. And the focus funnel was a concept that I learned from an author named Rory Vaden. And he wrote a book called Procrastinate on Purpose. Right. And it was just such a really interesting concept where you take a task or a project that comes through and you ask yourself, firstly, can we eliminate this? Is this something that needs to happen or Can we replace it or just eliminate it altogether? If we can't eliminate it, then the the second, it drops through to the next level of the funnel, which is, can we automate this? Can we employ some kind of technology or can we, you know, can we create a process or system that puts this on autopilot? If we can't eliminate or automate, then we ask ourselves, can we delegate this? And, you know, it's, it's not always feasible that it, something can be delegated. You know, you may not have the right skill sets within your organization yet. You may not, you may not have your, your people just may be tapped out on, on time for themselves. So if you can't eliminate, automate or delegate, then the task falls through the filter to you. Ooh. And the concept that he talks about in the book is you've got two choices. You can choose to concentrate on that right now or you can procrastinate, which means you're just going to put it on your to-do list and do it whenever. Mm. And so it's really important once you've got this data and intel to throw the tasks through the focus funnel because particularly there's a lot of little things that if we focused on building a system or procedure for it could be automated or delegated. With regards to elimination, once you do your time log, you'll work out, you know, 
do you need to check Facebook every hour? <laughs> Probably not. Do you need to check emails every hour? You know, and a lot of these tasks are time wasters mm. can be eliminated from our life simply by making a decision. But when we're conscious about them and then we, we actually filter them through, then we can make the decisions around that. And it's funny, an author that I know you've read, our main man, Stephen Covey, he tells us that if we spend a lot of our time on those important and urgent tasks, those things that are on fire, putting out fires, then when we do get a spare moment, we're likely to go to things that are not important and not urgent. And they're things like email and Facebook, because we need a mental break, because we're always in this high state of anxiety, putting out fires. So when we get a moment to ourselves, we check Facebook or check email. We do something that's a, a mental break for ourselves. So Stephen Covey, of course, he points us in the direction of those things that are not urgent, but important. They're things like growing ourselves, growing our team, doing some strategic planning, putting things in place that will reduce the number of fires that start in our organization. Absolutely. And one of the other methods that I'm a huge fan of and and use every single day is that Pomodoro method. I don't necessarily talk about it in the book, but that's sort of 25 and five and having, you know, 25 minutes of focused energy and five minutes of recovery. Yeah. And having iterations of that also, I think is vitally important to stay energized throughout our day. I think too often people are trying to sprint a marathon that is an eight to 10 hour work day. Yeah. Whereas if you break it into, into short sprints and recover in between, you're a lot more productive and you actually get a, a lot more done. And just a really interesting little thing is a lot of, and, and I'm sure we all do this from time to time, but one of the best skills I learned was to actually stop and eat lunch throughout my work day. I was always the classic eat while I'm checking emails or doing mm. whatever. I actually started to taste my food again rather than <laughs> just stuff it down you know what i mean and but it was a great time to mentally refocus yeah and kick i used to always have this lull in the afternoon it was simply for the fact that i wasn't recovering throughout the day and so i was just burning out and it's so important to do those things That's fantastic advice. So there's your five-step process. Keep a log, calculate your hourly rate, identify your genius, put things through the focus funnel, and then, of course, it's time to write your stop doing list. Correct. And what you'll find if you go through those five steps is the stop doing list just pops out for you. Like a good process. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the tool that you download will actually help you assess at a deeper level, your readiness to stop doing that task. And it tends to be around whether special skills are required, whether you have uh, systems or processes in place, or whether, you know, whether the, the investment into somebody else doing it, whether there's a positive return on investment there, because depending on what your hourly rate is, it may be worth you keeping that task. Where can the listeners go to find that tool, mate? Absolutely. If you go to www.stopdoing.com.au and it's a page dedicated to the book, but also to you can download the free resources at that site. And I'll, of course, put that link in the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. Mate, we haven't got a huge amount of time left, 
but I do want you to say a little bit about how you then go about finding the right people to do it. What kind of thinking goes into where you find the right people to do these tasks? Because often we're not talking about employing someone full-time, are we? Correct. So once you identify and you have your, your stop doing list in front of you, what you'll start to find, the first time through, you'll probably find there's a role, part-time role or a full-time role. You've got to ask yourself, do I want to employ someone locally or overseas? And I'll give two examples here. I mentioned earlier on the podcast that I've got two assistants. So I've got one locally that works two days a week for me. And as my businesses have grown, I've just needed somebody locally that can do a lot of running around, that can take a lot of that kind of load off me. I've also got a full-time assistant that resides in the Philippines. She's worked with me for five years, manages my emails, manages my calendar, manages my travel, changes appointments, does a lot of research for me, et cetera, et cetera. Both in, are required and both have a very different solve a very different problem for me. But you've got to choose, once you identify the tasks, where is the best location? Is it a part-time or a full-time role? Do I need someone sitting in my office or could someone be literally wherever? So I have an office, but none of my staff, and I've got 12 staff that work with me, we all work virtually. I've got a team all around the world. Fantastic. Um, And it's possible. It is possible in today's day and age for that to happen in many organizations. Absolutely. Um, now, on the flip is you may look at your stop doing this and something may be just on an ad hoc sort of task basis. I'll give an example of that. When I'm preparing for a presentation or a workshop, I'll often have a PowerPoint that I do. I've got a guy overseas that produces all of my PowerPoint presentations for me. I'll do a simple mind map and an audio recording explaining each of the slides that I want in it takes me for, let's say, a one-day workshop. It probably takes me about 60 to 90 minutes to prepare that. I then ship that off to Alex, and within 48 hours, I get a complete slide deck back. Fantastic. And And it's better than you could probably do anyway. It's better that I can do. He understands my style. Yeah, we sort of talk about that. It's unlimited revisions, and he charges me 48 cents a slide. Wow. Where is this guy based? He's in Romania. Right. Right. That's now, incredible. To put it in perspective, that's what he put forth as the fee. Mm. Right. I was like, are you sure? He said, yes. I'm like, great. You know, and often, so I found him through Upwork. Yeah. And mm. what's great about Upwork is it does give you the opportunity to bonus these people. Mm. So often mm. if, if my guys are doing great work, like regular contractors that I'm using, I'll often bonus them, you know what I mean? And it, it, it works for, for them and they appreciate it and it's just really good. But uh, but in recruiting, you've got to work out, is it sort of like I don't need Alex on my staff because I might be doing, I don't know, let's call it one or two new presentation slide decks a month. Mm. Whereas with my administrative roles or various other roles that we have in the organization, they are more, they're full-time roles. They're all on a contract basis. And we have to choose whether it's local or overseas. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, I, and you've you've wrote in your book that there are there are some thoughts that oh, geez, you're you're paying these overseas people so little to do it, 
and you rationalize that, well, they're, they're working in their own economy and that's the price they're setting. And if you pay the price they're setting, then everyone's winning really. And it's a brand new economy, but there's a whole new discussion really, isn't it? About how you go about finding the right people. And your book does a really good job of covering that, Matt. We're going to leave it there now, mate. Look, I've really enjoyed our conversation, but I hate to tell you, you're not off the hook yet. There's four more questions that I always finish my podcast with. Are you ready to go? I am. These are designed so we get to know a little bit more about you, Matt Maloof. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to. A big party with lots of people you know or a quiet dinner with your closest friends? I'm a quiet dinner with closest friends. Are you? I love the decisiveness there as well. All right. Now, mate, are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Um, neither. Um, <laughs> more likely. Listen to the question. Are you no, more I likely? Um, can we have a C option? <laughs> no, every guest wants a C option. Uh, I'm probably I'm, I'm not likely to daydream. So of those two options, I'm more likely to get caught up in the detail. Excellent. And how about this one? This is the second last question. Are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? Ooh, that's a good question. I think that my belief is that we're all emotional beings at some level. So I would say that I will, would go with emotion. Ooh, good man. All right. Very last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotel, plan the route, know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? I like to have a plan. Do you? Good man. <laughs> Matt Maloof, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I loved your book. Great concept. I'm going to offload a whole bunch more things in my life. Thanks to you. Thanks, David. That was Matt Maloof convincing us all of something that deep down we know very well. If we're able to hone in on the activities that truly add value to our life and sensibly outsource the things that don't to people who do it better anyway, we'd be far happier and content. Matt identified the four reasons people usually have for not ditching tasks in their life. The first is, no one can do it as well as I can. Secondly, I don't want to give up control. Then I can't afford it. And finally, laughably, I don't have time to delegate. And he talked us through the five-step process for identifying the things we should stop doing. Number one, a time log. Number two, calculate our hourly rate. What is your time worth? Number three, identify your genius, the things that you love doing that add the most value to your life. And number four, put tasks through the focus tunnel. Can they be eliminated, automated, or delegated? And number five, write your stop doing list. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Matt on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn. And join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the principles and theory of team and leadership development. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.